Today's episode is brought to you by Romer Skincare. Based out of Chicago, Romer launched a work-from-home clean skincare line that covers all your skin needs. They proved that you don't need a million serums and eye creams to get better skin. Why we love them? Clean ingredients and effective results with just a simple three-step routine that you and even your partner can share. Right now, Romer Skincare is offering our listeners 15% off and a gift with your first purchase by using the code LISTENER15. That's code LISTENER15 on their website, romerskincare.com. No stress, no clutter, just happy skin. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. We now have more goodies available on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner some of these fun goodies, such as stickers, pins, and magnets, as well as a shout-out on the show. You can also go to the website and make a one-time donation via PayPal at cherryavenuetruecrime.com. Shout-out to Texas. You have beat out California as the state with my most listeners. Love you. Come on, California, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio. You all are in my top five. My home state of Michigan is number seven, but at least you are finally charting in the top ten now. Love you, Michigan. Go Red Wings. Shout out to Ontario, Brighton and Hove, Berlin, Glasgow City, and Manitoba as the top five cities outside of the U.S. Love you guys so much. This is a true crime podcast. This episode contains details of extreme violence and murders. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This is part one of a two-part episode on Helter Skelter, the Manson murders, the details on everyone involved, what led up to it, and what happened afterward. This was a truly horrific murder spree. Sometimes I think the humanity of the victims is really lost in all the Charles Manson craziness. Humans are always looking to belong, looking for their people, looking for people like themselves, craving a connection of some kind. Manson played into this at one of the easiest times in history to pull it off. He didn't even know what type of world he was walking out into when he was released from prison in 1967. But he was good at adapting quickly. After years of having to survive abusive care from relatives, and then people in the reform schools, and boys' homes, and the prisons. He came out with his pimp knowledge and his Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People education, along with his gift of being able to turn into, or seem like, what people wanted. He didn't change into what he wanted until they were well, well ensnared. The family was not allowed to read anything but the Bible. Once they were there, part of the family, the girls were subjected to knowing that they didn't question Charlie. They were not to talk about their pasts. Their lives started when they met Charlie. Charlie could talk about his past, about prison, about what he had gone through to get where they were to lead them, but they didn't have pasts. One woman that was brought to the ranch recruited by another male family member was introduced to Charlie when he was naked. Charlie did not put on clothes, and he stood up, bowed to her with everything out there and swinging, 
and said, welcome, madam. She did not respond, so he said something about her being one of those women who made men afraid to show their pecker. She told him now he was just being rude. He asked her if her papa taught her to be polite. She told him her papa told her not to put up with men like him doing what he was doing. He told the guy who brought her to take her away. She didn't belong. While they walked away, he told them to move quicker as he didn't want to see any more of her piggy face. He would make comments about the girls having tiny female brains that couldn't comprehend if they ever dared question him about anything. He used all he learned in prison on how to get them to be devoted to him. I want to start with a brief account of the victims from the first night, the people who were so mercilessly slaughtered, and we will go into more detail later. Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring were by all accounts two of the nicest people in show business. Sharon and Jay had once been engaged, but were now just good friends. Sharon, having married the very famous director of the time, Roman Polanski, and being eight months pregnant with their son. Jay was the hairstylist to the stars and had close friends in Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, among many others. Wojtek Frykowski was a friend of Roman Polanski's from Poland. They had met while in school. He was a writer and helped produce Roman's first movie. Abigail Folger was a Harris to the Folger Coffee Fortune. She was also a social worker. She and Wojtek were seeing each other. Stephen Parent was just an 18-year-old boy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. As I said, we will get into more detail on all of them. They were so much more than just what happened to them that one night. The initial TV news reports went along these lines. A movie actress and four of her friends were murdered. This was at the home of movie director Roman Polanski. It was his wife, eight months pregnant, who was one of the victims. The others were a male hairdresser, the heiress to a coffee fortune, a writer, and a boy barely out of high school. Different news outlets said things such as, bodies were scattered inside, on the lawn, and on the driveway. In all my years, I have never seen anything like this. Stunned the city and shocked the world. Winifred Chapman arrived to the main house to work at 8.30 a.m. August 9th, where she found bodies. She called the police. Two bodies were found inside the house, one in a vehicle in the driveway, and two of them on the lawn. Now let's go back to the beginning. Before this happened, what happened that led up to this horrible carnage and heartbreak? Charles Manson was born November 12, 1934, in Benwood, McKechn, West Virginia, a small mill mining town. It is said that there were a lot of stories that Charles Manson made up about his childhood. There were some crazy interviews from prison, and some of the stories he told were true, and some were not. He told a lot of stories which have been discounted somehow or another. It was true, though, that his uncle did in fact make him go to school in a dress at age five in first grade. It was also true that his mother was not a great caregiver and did, in fact, go to jail for strong-arm robbery when he was four. Charlie's grandmother was fundamental Christian and raised her kids under the strict guidelines. You had to go to church every Sunday. There was no going to the movies, no dancing, etc. Kathleen, Charlie's mother, rebelled and went dancing in the town across the river from hers. 
Kathleen got pregnant by a married man, Colonel Scott. He was not a military man. That was his given name, Colonel. They met at a dance hall. She came home pregnant and unwed in the 1930s and belonged to a fundamentalist Christian family. She was only 16. That was not good. She was the example in the family of bad things that happened if you don't follow the rules. William Eugene Manson had met Kathleen at one of these dance halls as well. He married Kathleen before Charlie was born, and he was well aware that she was pregnant with another man's child. They were married on the 21st of August, 1934, and Charles was born on November 12, 1934. He was named Charles Mills Manson in honor of his deceased grandfather. William Manson divorced Kathleen for being unfaithful when Charlie was two and a half. Kathleen often went on drunken adventures with her brother, Luther. William Manson alleged gross neglect of duty for the divorce in 1937. Kathleen then did an armed robbery with her brother, Luther, who held up a man with a ketchup bottle to the back of his neck and said it was a gun. The guy didn't believe him, so Luther struck him over the head with the bottle and then he and Kathleen fled with the man's wallet. They were arrested August 1, 1939. Charlie had to go live with his Aunt Glenna and Uncle Bill. It was his uncle that took him to visit his mother in prison. She was behind the wall, behind a thick glass partition, and that scared the four-and-a-half-year-old boy who cried to get to her. His uncle did not like that. He had to be tough even at four, or going on five, and not cry because he was a boy. Uncle Bill was a stern disciplinarian and apparently had no empathy. Then in first grade, he had a horrible teacher who was mean to boys in particular, and she put him in the back of the class with kids she determined to be the dummies. He came home crying about this, and his uncle decided then to humiliate him with a dress. He basically said if he was going to cry like a little girl, he had to dress like one. He was just a little boy whose mom was in prison. Imagine how horrible school and life was for him after that. He had a horrible, nasty teacher for first grade and then was made to wear a dress to school. This story is one of the worst. He was taken to church, and this is where he learned the Bible, the Nazarene way. The Bible would feature in much of the commune cult that he wanted. He heard about women being subservient to men. He heard about the book of Revelations. He had an incredible memory. He was like a sponge. His mom got out of prison after three years into her five-year sentence because of good behavior. She took Charlie back, moved to another small town, and got a job at a grocery store. Charlie wouldn't stay in school and often left school after she dropped him off. He would turn up at her work, or a truant officer would come to her work and tell her that Charlie had left school. Eventually, she turned him over to a boys' school, Chabalt School for Boys, ran by Catholic priests. Punishment for even a small infraction was beatings with a wooden paddle or a leather strap. He ran away from Chabalt and spent Christmas with his mother, and then she took him back to the boys' home and turned him back in. Less than a year later, he ran away to Indianapolis, and he did some petty crime there and was eventually caught. A judge sent him to Boys Town, a juvenile hall in Omaha, Nebraska. He lasted four days there and got some other boys together, and they stole a car that belonged to a priest. There is no doubt that his childhood was a sad one. I don't wish that on any child. 
A neighbor and fellow Sunday school attendee who knew him when he was little spoke about how sad his childhood really was. She said she always thought that a little love, a little understanding might have made a difference. He was sent to the Indiana's Boys School, the state reform school, and he didn't do well there either. He was always on the smaller side, and he was picked on, and even sadder was sexually abused. He lashed out and ended up in increasingly tougher and worse schools. This is where he eventually developed the wild, crazy look that would protect him. He looked so scary, so much like a lunatic, that it was taken that he could do anything. You just didn't know, and most guys would back off. His last place was a maximum security detention facility in Chillicothe. This was a last-ditch effort place where they put kids that were problems to the extent that they just needed a place to keep them until they were 21. This time, though, he behaved. He tried hard in school, and he was given the honor award, which they apparently did not give out very often. He got out, went back to McMechan, and he got a job. He got married just a few months after. Rosalie, Charlie's wife, worked at a grocery store, and they moved into a little house in McMechan. A neighbor said that when she went to the reception, Charles was the happiest she had ever seen him. But then his wife got pregnant and there were medical bills. Charlie took a second job, but it was not enough, and he went on to stealing cars. At this time, his mother had moved to California with her new husband. Charlie convinced his pregnant wife to go with him to California. He stole a car to drive them there. Instead of getting rid of the car when they got there, he drove it around and eventually got pulled over. He was apprehended when police took note of his out-of-state plates and called on them, finding out it was stolen. His wife had a baby boy while in prison. Jeff Gwynn, author of Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson, was interviewed in the Epics documentary. He said he talked to psychologists on why he would make such mistakes. Deep down, he always wanted to be in prison, that he felt safe there and subconsciously doing these dumb things so he could get back to where he felt secure. In prison, he learned to play guitar from a famous gangster-era killer, Elvin Creepy Carpus. He learned just enough from the salesperson's Bible how to win friends and influence people, the Dale Carnegie course that they were offering in California prisons. He also learned about pimping from real pimps in jail. The main points he picked up there was how to control the women, how to make them dependent on you. And the final learning he found beneficial in the growing of his cult family was from some of the teachings of Scientology. Some of the things, ideas, from Dale Carnegie's course that Charlie especially liked were these. How to get the best of an argument is not to get into one. In the epics documentary Helter Skelter, a former inmate who was in with Charlie told a story of how Charlie was playing his guitar outside in the yard. A guard told him, Charlie, you can't play your guitar over here. You have to go over there and play it. Charlie just kept playing anyway. Then the guard said, you know, you ain't ever getting out of here. Charlie just said, out of where, man? Don't give them anything to tear into. In the guitar playing example, Charlie did not argue and he did not give him anything to tear into. What is there to say to out of where, man? I know people who live to argue. Argue about anything, practically. I think we all know someone or more than one person like that. If you give those type of people any real response, they will use whatever it is there to argue with you. If you give them a response like Charlie did, they got nothing. 
Now that works for those type of people, but it also works for normal people who want to question things. That's probably the main way that Charlie used it when he got out of prison. Always let the other guy think the idea is his. He would drop hints, usually with one of the girls, and then she would say, I have an idea. It was dropping a seed. When he left Terminal Island, the prison, he had a goal in mind of being a pimp. He listened to the pimps in prison. They told him how to find the right girls, find young women who are bent but not broken, emotionally disturbed but not completely gone. Then you have to make them depend on you. You have to keep them from talking to family or friends, keep them from outside influences. You control every aspect of their lives. You have to be the only person they can turn to. He ended up back in prison before he could make much of a go of pimping. He tried it but didn't make enough money, or at least as much as he wanted, and he had to do other illegal things, which landed him back in prison. But this time, it was in McNeil Island around Seattle. This is where Manson met Elvin Creepy Carpus. He plays steel guitar, and Manson got lessons from him. This is also where Manson learns about Scientology. Manson is particularly interested in the theory that your body is a vessel that you are temporarily in, and greater things are always possible. You have the opportunity to be this great, glorious being, and you have probably seen this before, and it's just a matter of accepting your nature. Charlie gets out in 1967, and he grows his hair long, and he sees what's going on. He heads out to Berkeley. He looks like he fits in, except he didn't care about the Vietnam War, and he didn't care about the other causes of equality. He saw with free love that he was going to have to revamp his ideas about being a pimp again. The thing he can work with is the fact that young people are feeling alienated, like they don't belong. Mary Bruner is a librarian in Berkeley when she meets Charles Manson. She's from the Midwest, and she is dressed like a librarian, not a hippie. He met her when she was walking her dog, and he used the dog as something to talk about. He used the Dale Carnegie techniques. They become quick friends, and Manson tells her that he doesn't have a place to stay at the moment. Mary offers to let him stay at her place for a few nights. They start to sleep together, and it becomes more like a relationship. She goes to work, and Charlie goes out to work on his music. Then he starts bringing other girls back with him. He uses the free love ideas of the days to convince her that this is okay, and she eventually comes to terms with sharing him. Gurus were a big thing then. There were many philosophers speaking to the kids in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Charlie hangs around the park and listens to them. He gradually started his own little group. Mary Bruner, a wholesome-looking blonde, then Lynette Fromm, who was a runaway and would become known as Squeaky, with a short red hair pixie cut. Patricia Krenwinkel, long medium brown hair and sturdy, and Susan Atkins, who had long dark hair and quite a background. Charlie still wanted a music career, so they moved. They went from San Francisco down to L.A. They picked up another girl there, Diane, who was only 14 or 15 at the time, and she would have sex with Charlie that very night. She said she was already sexually active at this point, but he made love to her that night, and it was magic. Paul Watkins met the group when he bought some weed off them. He became Manson's chief recruiter for young women. Bobby Busolet entered the picture not long after that. He was nicknamed Cupid, as all the girls liked him. He was a troubled kid who had gone to reform school, and he wanted to be a musician like Manson. 
there were more and more young people joining the family. They soon found Spawn Ranch, and they moved right in and took over. Some of the girls were hitchhiking one day and got picked up by Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys. He met Charlie and somehow hit it off, and then Charlie and a group of the girls were practically living at Dennis Wilson's house out in the Pacific Palisades for a while. Dennis was the one that got Terry Melcher to come out and listen to Charlie's music. This gave Charlie a lot of hope for his music career. Charlie wrote his own songs and performed them for all of them. Dennis was generous to the people he tried to help. Dennis's friends at the time said that people would come and listen to Charlie to humor Dennis. Wilson had a sort of habit of finding misfits and waifs and trying to help them in some way. Charles Tex Watson is picked up hitchhiking by Dennis Wilson, and Dennis takes him back to his house where Charlie and the girls are. He was from a small town in Texas, and the people back there thought he would be one to grow up and do great things. His dad had a gas station there, and he would help out. He went off to college and discovered drugs. He left college and ended up in California, where he met the family. He was enchanted by the girls and Charlie. When the Beach Boys went off to tour, Dennis left Charlie and the girls at his house. Come to find out, there were huge bills of things that they were charging to his accounts and having delivered. For example, one bill was around $1,200 for dairy delivery. Wilson finally saw he was being taken advantage of. They moved back to Spawn Ranch. The upheaval from 67 to 69 is well covered in Helter Skelter documentary on epics. It's a new documentary and very well done, interesting, and informative. There were protests and riots. Charlie thought that black people were inferior, but he was also afraid of them. The Beatles' White Album was one he would play over and over for the family. This is where he got the idea to tell everyone that the Helter Skelter apocalypse was coming. Charlie played it over and over, and the members of the family listened to the key words, blackbirds, piggies. Piggies were the rich or well-off white people, according to Charlie. There is debate as to whether Charlie really believed any of this was going to happen, or if he just used it as his guru prophecy philosophy to keep the kids enthralled and with a purpose of some kind. There were race riots in every major city, so Manson translating the Helter Skelter song to mean this is happening was his way of predicting something that he could show them was true, unlike the music career. They were along the lines that God was ready to end this chapter and to start it again with his chosen people. He told them how the black man would take over, but would find they didn't know how to rule. So they would come to him, to them, and they would help them rule. They would hide in the desert, and when it was over, they would be waiting to rule because he claimed the black people wouldn't know how to do so without a white person. And they would go to the only white people left, which would be the family, and ultimately Charlie. For the move to Death Valley, they met a girl whose grandparents had a place out there. This went with Charlie's thing that the bottomless pit that they should be in while the race war would be out there. A bottomless pit was mentioned in the book of Revelations that Charlie read. He told them that they would move into this bottomless pit when the real race wars were going on. He convinced them that they were all going to rule the world. Some former family members were interviewed, and they said that Charlie was convinced that the Beatles were sending him subliminal messages and that he became obsessed with it. Charlie was still trying to make it into music, though. He went back to L.A. to try one more time. Some say Melcher had left it off that he would be in touch, but wasn't. 
Others say he had already told Charlie that it wasn't going to happen, but Charlie couldn't let go. Charlie told them that all the people in Hollywood did not value their word, and that where he was from, prison, if you didn't value your word, you would die. He then put it all into the race wars and living in Death Valley until that happened. It was all about money to live out there after that. They went out there and checked it out, but they didn't move out there yet. There was an issue with a drug dealer called Lotsapapa and Tex Watson. Bernard Crow was his real name, Lotsapapa. He gave Tex the money for a significant amount of drugs, but never got the drugs. Bernard Crow started to make threats, including killing everyone at the ranch. Charlie actually took a twenty-two and shot Bernard Crow in the gut. Crow survived, but Charlie didn't know that. A newspaper report came out around that time saying that the body of a Black Panther had been found, and Charlie thought that meant Bernard Crow was a Black Panther, and that he was who he shot. Charlie became much more paranoid and anxious after that. He was convinced the Black Panthers were going to kill everyone on the ranch. He tried to get enough weapons for the family, and he posted lookouts. He gave them all six-inch buck knives and showed them how to throw them. Apparently, he was very accurate with his throw. He also showed them how to stick the knife in and make sure to move it around to get as many organs as possible. Charlie's personality changed. He was aggravated all the time, not the free spirit that they thought he had been. He became very serious about protection and being armed. This is when Danny DiCarlo and the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club came into it. They had visited recently, and Charlie asked them to come stay on the ranch for protection. They brought a lot of guns and other weapons. Charlie started the family kids on creepy crawly missions where they were dressed up in black clothing. They snuck into people's homes and moved furniture or other items around. Charlie said this was to instill fear. One of the girls, Diane, talked about this time, and she said they were seeing the other side of Charlie. He was getting violent, having hit some of the girls on different occasions. One time, she noticed that he was disturbed, and she asked him if he was okay, if there was anything that she could do for him, and he just turned around and slapped her. On another night, she was feeling like she hadn't been with Charlie in a long time, and so she came on to him. He took her out to a trailer or caravan, and she said instead of being magical like it was the first time with him, it was brutal. He roughly sodomized her, and it was horrible. She was bleeding afterwards, and she went to the creek and just sat in it. She said she was really lost after that. He did indeed get them to depend on him. She was so lost and sad that she seriously thought about taking her own life and jumping off the cliff behind Spawn Ranch. Bobby Busillet tried to get party drugs for the Straight Satan Motorcycle Club. One of the things he got was mescaline, and they didn't like it because it didn't mix well with the other stuff that they were on. They wanted their money back and told Bobby to get it. Bobby went over with Susan Atkins and Mary Bruner to Gary Hinman's house. Gary Hinman had just been doing him a favor by hooking him up with the mescaline and didn't have the money to give back to him. One of the girls called Charlie and said that it had all gotten out of control and that they couldn't get the money back from Gary. Charlie came over and just slashed Gary in the face with a knife. He told Bobby he did it to show him how to be a man. Bobby stayed with Gary and tried to take care of the wound. He stayed the whole next day, becoming increasingly desperate. He didn't want to take Gary to the hospital because he would be going to prison. Gary eventually insisted on it. Bobby called Charlie and told him he didn't know what to do. 
Charlie told him he did know what to do, and he knew just as well as he did. He ended up stabbing Gary to death. Someone wrote with blood on the wall, but Bobby didn't remember doing it. It could have been Susan, or Mary, or Bobby. They wrote Political Piggy. This was July 26, 1969, 13 days until the murders at Sharon Tate's home. Gary's body wasn't found until almost a week later on July 31st. Charlie went on a road trip to Esalon Institute near Big Sur on August 4th. He took his guitar and went to show them his musical talent. He was not happy when they were not impressed. They drove back down the coast towards L.A. August 8, 1969, he got back and told them it was time for Helter Skelter. He gathered together Susan Atkins, Tex Watson, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. They were told to get a change of clothing, knife, and driver's license. He told the girls to do whatever Tex said. Tex was told to take a knife, a gun, and a change of clothes. Tex said he was given exact orders, including what to write on the walls. Manson told Susan Watkins to leave a sign, something witchy. Atkins said she and Tex did some cocaine with something else mixed in, and she said it was basically speed. Atkins said they drove to the house with instructions to kill everyone in the house. Sharon Tate was not only an incredibly beautiful actress, she was also a very nice person by all accounts. Roman, her husband, said, All of you know how beautiful she was, but only few of you know how good she was. The last few months, the last few years that I spent with her were the only time of true happiness in my life. Sharon was a regular in fashion magazines as a model and cover girl, and she had small parts on TV before moving into movies. She played Jennifer North in the 1967 cult classic Valley of the Dolls. The movie is interesting, and Sharon does a good job with the character. The book Valley of the Dolls is a must-read, in my opinion. She was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Valley of the Dolls. She was also in the 1966 Eye of the Devil and 1967's The Fearless Vampire Killers, which was directed by Roman Polanski, her future husband. She was in the 1968 The Wrecking Crew with Dean Martin. Sharon Marie Tate was born on January 24, 1943, in Dallas, Texas. She was the firstborn of three girls. Her dad was a U.S. Army officer, and the family moved a lot. She had thought she would go to school to study psychiatry, but eventually ended up in the entertainment industry. Jay Sebring was literally a hairdresser to the male stars. He cut hair for Henry Fonda, Steve McQueen, and Paul Newman. He made a great deal of money doing this. Like Sharon, he was said to be very personable, a very nice person. Everyone liked him. He and Sharon had been previously engaged, and they had lived together for three years. By all accounts, he was still hung up on her. She obviously still cared a great deal for him, as she spent a lot of time with him, and they were together in their last moments. Jay was born Thomas John Coomer on October 10, 1933, and was known professionally as Jay Sebring. He was born in Alabama, but grew up in the middle-class suburbs of Southfield, Michigan. Sebring served in the Navy for four years and fought in the Korean War. He moved to Los Angeles and started using the name Jay Sebring. Jay for the first initial of his middle name, and Sebring for the famous Florida car race. At a time when barbers charged a dollar to two dollars for a haircut, Sebring charged fifty dollars or more. 
He flew to Las Vegas every three weeks to cut the hair of Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. He later designed the Doors' Jim Morrison's free-flowing style. When you're good, you're good. Wojtek Frakowski was born in Poland on December 22, 1936. Polanski and Frykowski met at a school dance. Polanski, serving as the doorman for the dance that night, wouldn't let Frykowski into the venue. He knew he had a rough reputation. They almost got into a brawl, but instead had drinks together and became good friends. Beneath his tough exterior, Wojtek was good-natured, soft-hearted to the point of sentimentality, and utterly loyal, Polanski later wrote of his dear friend. A year after they moved to Los Angeles, Frykowski and Folger house-sat for Polanski at 10050 Cielo Drive. The two watched the house while Polanski and Tate were away in London. But Polanski was so busy with his next film project that it was decided Tate, who was eight months pregnant, would go back to stay with Frykowski and Folger at their house until their baby arrived. Abigail Folger was born on August 11, 1943, and would die just two days before her 26th birthday. Born into a wealthy family, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune, she graduated from Harvard University with an art history degree. She worked as a social worker in New York and then L.A. On August 8, 1969, Tate had been home for three weeks after visiting Polanski, who was directing a film in London. Tate was eight and a half months pregnant, and her husband asked Frykowski and Folger to stay at the house with her until he returned home. Stephen Earl Parent was born on February 12, 1951, the firstborn child of Wilfred and Juanita Parent. Stephen graduated from Arroyo High School in June of 1969. Planning to attend Citrus Junior College in Azusa in September, he was working two jobs to save up money for his tuition. In late July, Stephen picked up a hitchhiker named William Gerritsen. Gerritsen was the summer caretaker for the property located at 10050 Cielo Drive. When he dropped Gerritsen off at the property, the caretaker told Stephen to feel free to drop by any time. On Friday evening, August 8, 1969, Stephen headed to Cielo Drive. Stephen had a Sony AM-FM Digimatic clock radio he wanted to try to sell to William Gerritsen. He arrived on the property around 11.45 p.m. Gerritsen declined to buy the clock radio, but gave Stephen a can of beer. Before he left, Stephen used the guest house phone to call a UCLA student by the name of John Friedman. He was building Friedman a stereo. It was roughly around 12.15 a.m. when Stephen left the guest house and headed for his car, his father's white 1966 Nash Ambassador, which was in the driveway. There would have been no reason for anyone in the house at the top of Cielo Drive to be afraid of any dangerous intruders. The house was at the top of a series of winding roads, nice area, increasingly higher and nicer homes sprinkled about, not as many homes as there are now on the road that leads up to Cielo. The house had a gate at the end of its driveway. There were four people in the house with Sharon that night. I'm sure she felt safe. I doubt anyone imagined someone coming in to harm them let alone a group of people. As the killers went in, a car was driving towards them. It was 18-year-old Stephen Parent. Watson had a 22 caliber buntline revolver that had a 9-inch barrel. Tex shot the gun four times. Stephen Parent was killed. Watson went in through the dining room window, which was cracked open. He pushed it up as far as it could go, took the screen off, and then climbed in through there. 
He then went around to the front door and let Atkins and Krenwinkel in. They both had knives. Tex told them to go to the back of the house and see if anyone else was there. They passed Abigail Folger reading in bed in her room. Abigail looked up at them, most likely thinking they were guests of Sharon's, and waved. Tex found Wojtek Frykowski on the couch. Wojtek said to him, Who are you? Tex told him, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Everyone in the house was then gathered up and brought into the living room. Watson hit Jay Sebring in the face with the butt of the gun. He was shot and then stabbed seven times. Abigail Folger ran out of the back of the house. Krenwinkel chased her with a knife and left a fingerprint on the shutters of the back door. Krenwinkel chased her to the front yard and jumped on top of her and stabbed her repeatedly. She was stabbed a total of 28 times. Wojtek Frykowski tried to run out of the house and Tex chased him out the front door and stabbed him repeatedly. He was hit 13 times with the butt of the gun. He was shot several times. He was stabbed a total of 51 times. Atkins was holding Sharon Tate at knife point through all of this. Sharon was begging her to please not kill her, that she just wanted to have her baby. Susan Atkins said, Look, bitch, you might as well face it now. You are going to die. Susan Atkins testified that she got sick of listening to Sharon repeatedly beg for her life and for the life of her baby, so she stabbed her. Watson threw a long rope over the high beam right there in the living room. He tied one end of the rope around Jay Sebring's neck and the other around Sharon's neck. Susan Atkins used a towel to dip into Sharon's blood and then write pig on the front door. The next morning, there was a body in a car in the driveway that you could see through the front gate. The Manson members heard the news the next day that it was famous people that they had murdered. This is the end of part one. Tune back in for part two. We go on to the next night with further bloodshed in the LaBianca murders, the search for the killers, the crazy trial with more death during the trial, and more information that comes out, as well as details on the killers' backgrounds. Please check out our sponsor at RomerSkinCare.com and visit our website at CherryAvenueTrueCrime.com for a link to the $5 meal plan that I think you're going to like. Thank you again for listening. Uh, Please remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss part two of this episode. I will have it out by Thursday of next week, but I may have it out earlier for you. So please hit subscribe. It's free. And that way you won't miss part two or any of the other episodes. Thank you again. And as always, be safe.